0: Father God, we just praise you this day, this, is this day that you've made, and we can rejoice and be glad in it. And in a city of this size, you know each of us by name, and you know where we've come from, and you know our story. And you, you have welcomed us into your family as part of the body of Christ. We thank you for the ministry of Kimbrace, that it is welcoming. And walking alongside people, just as you came to this earth to walk alongside us and understand, show that you understand and you care for our needs. And thank you that we can, it's a place that um, we can learn from each other, that you've created each person in your image, and there's beauty in that. So we just rejoice in that, and and thank you for the work. And we pray your continued favor on, on these different ministries that Carrie's been talking about. We pray for your provision, and we pray for your continued leading. And thank you that they are your salt and light in their community. Teach us what it is means to be, to look like. Continue to teach us what it means to look like your kingdom in this place, um, in this community, with um, the different challenges that we have. We pray for your guidance in your leading. We also pray, Lord, that we can be clean vessels that you can work through. We ask that you continue to mold us and shape us and conform us to your will. For all these things, we give you praise. In your name I pray, amen.
1: I go home to Victoria, you know, usually Sunday afternoons, and Harry picks me up at the ferry uh, about uh, 4 o'clock. And usually we talk a little. How was your church this morning? She goes to a, a Baptist church in Victoria and she'll say, How was the Chinese church this morning? I say, I don't really know. I followed an announcement on manure. Not quite sure what I'm going to do with that or where she's going to go with that, but anyway. And uh, thank you, Carrie, for just sharing a little bit of what your ministry is. Many of us have come um, to this place, maybe not as refugees, some as refugees. And many of us just looking for a new and different life. I remember it was July the 10th, 1968, that um, along with the new bride of three weeks old in in our marriage, we landed in Toronto. And we landed with nothing. We had a few family members, but we could find our own way. And so there was nobody like Kinbrace to help us know how... The bus system worked or all of those kind of things. So thank you for sharing that little window into your ministry. Much, much appreciated. I remember when I was on 1617 in Glasgow, I was starting to work through some of the major kind of questions and issues of my life. Um, I'd been raised in a church. Never remember. We, we didn't go to church, but it was raised in a church. But, but I really was coming to a crossroads. And the crossroads really was this. Is this single Christianity true? And the crossroads for me was, on one hand, I could take the turn into Christianity, or I could turn, which for me would have been, the route I would have gone, was into existentialism. as people like Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That would have been the only, for me, the only other alternative road I would have taken. And the way that I'm wired If I was to move and step into Christianity, it had to have intellectual integrity. Faith does not come from me on thin air. Faith is rooted in facts. Scripture has to have integrity in what it says. And so to the best of my ability, 16, 17 years old, and going into university to study philosophy, I really started to find a foundation for my life that was not built on existentialism but was built on historic Christianity. And that's where I've really committed my life. But as I step into the kingdom, and you would understand this this morning with me, you realize that kingdom activity, we're talking all this at winter session about what the kingdom of God is. Kingdom activity often cuts across the normal grain of accepted thinking and wisdom. It asks us in its own ways to suspend the status quo. Life in the spirit has contradictions. Jesus says things like, the first should be last, and the last should be first. You think, how does that work? Because surely, if you want to be first, you've got to get to the top of the line. And you've got to stand there and hold your position. Jesus says, no, the first should be last. Jesus says things like, if you try to hang on to your life and preserve it, you lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life and give it away for my sake and the Gospels, he says, then you find it. You really discover what life is all about. You think to yourself, how does that work? So as we unpack some different aspects of what the kingdom means, last week we talked about kingdom relationships. This morning I want to pick up what I'll call several kingdom contradictions for you. And try to unpack them and see how they do make sense in our lives. In fact, they're not contradictions. They're the ways that we have to think and live and walk if we move in the kingdom of God. And we start this morning with um, what I call kingdom contradiction number one. And that is this that the wealth of the kingdom is given to those who are pure in spirit. The wealth of the kingdom is given to those of the poor Several years ago, I think it was in the Vancouver Sun, in the years that we lived in Vancouver, um, there was a, an article in the Vancouver Sun one day um, about a list of the richest people in the world. At the top of the list, those days, I don't know if he's still there, it was Bill Gates. I don't know if he's still up there or not. but he had $56 billion, not a million, but a billion dollars. Number two was Warren Buffett. If you know that name, Warren Buffett's an investment guru. He had $52 billion. Number four was a man called M. Ingvar Kamprad. Now, you may not know him, but you know the name Ikea. And his was the family that started Ikea. And he was moving up with $33 billion. And then somewhere down the list was British Columbia's Jimmy Patterson. He was 230th, and I thought, "Oh, poor Jimmy." <laughs> Only with what was it 3.8 billion at that particular time, a couple of years ago. Surely we might think, if God really wants to get something done in the world, He should give His, his kingdom to the wealth and the power of the kingdom to those who are already wealthy. To those who are famous. To those who have got great skill and ability. Or to last Sunday night, to those people who won the Oscars. And so that everybody knows their name all around the world. Surely, wouldn't it be smart for God to sort of really take the, the rich and famous in the world and say, these are the people with money and power and position and wealth and fame. I'm going to get them on my side. And then we'll really drive this thing forward. With great respect, Carry. Carrie, do we need to sort of make ends meet by selling manure? But if we had Bill Gates on our side, man, Bill could buy all the manure he wanted. Just write us a check for that. Imagine if they could hold of a Donald Trump. What could he accomplish? And then one day in a grassy hillside, Jesus contradicts that kind of thinking for his day and ours. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by poor in spirit? Well, um, you know that I unpack a lot of what's in the Greek text of things. Greek is two words for poor. And Paul uses these, Jesus uses these. Um, one word for poor is someone who works for a living. You know, you go to work a Monday morning, you can pay it on Friday or whatever it is. You buy what you need to eat, you pay your bills, and then guess what? You do it all over again. Doesn't that sound familiar? Frankly, that's most of us. That's what we do. In other words, it's the word for people who've got to go for, to work for a living who are not independently wealthy. That's us. The other word for poor is the word that really is destitute. You have nothing. You are down and out. And when Jesus uses this word in Matthew, that's the word that he uses. He says, blessed are those who are the down and outers. The same word is used to describe Jesus when Paul writes in Corinthians, you may remember the verse, he said, remember he says, he was rich and he became poor. That's the word. That Jesus wasn't a day laborer. Jesus became down and out. He chose to become down and out. So that we through his poverty, so that we through his being down and outness, might become rich, and we might know the wealth of God. What does Jesus mean by the poor in spirit? Takes us beyond finances. Poor originally meant that you didn't have much money. You were poor, you had no money. And then if you had no money, that meant in his time, obviously, you had no influence. You could not afford a lawyer. You could not exert influence or power because of the lack of wealth of your position. And then there's a transition in this condition. You can now be taken advantage of by those who are rich and powerful. We might use the word vulnerable. So what do you do? You do the only thing you can do. You throw yourself on the only person left, who is God. That's the poor in spirit. And only when we come to face and realize our own helplessness, Jesus is meaning... When we accept our under, utter inability to cope with life on our own, our money or our fame, nothing can help us and so we place our dependence upon God. I picked up the words of one of the songs that we sang this morning. Thank you, Florence, for it. Um, empty-handed but alive in your hands. That was the line. So we're empty-handed. We get nothing in terms of wealth, um, position, power, but we're alive in your hands. So the kingdom of God is not automatically given to the wealthy, to the rich, the famous, to the powerful, to, to the strong. It is given to those who have realized and accepted their utter helplessness without God, the refugees, and they have learned to trust and obey. Because, you see, obedience is always based on trust. It's an old hand. We don't sing it much anymore. Nothing in my hand I bring. Somebody got the next line? Simply? to thy cross I cling. The wealth and the power of the kingdom is entrusted to those who have found a God, empty-handed, found God. That's a kingdom contradiction. Here's another one. Kingdom contradiction number two. When you discover the kingdom, you have to surrender everything for it. Let me read you a couple of these kingdom parables. We worked through some of them a couple of weeks ago. They come from Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought the field. Now a parable that goes again alongside that. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. Those two stories start as opposites. There are two contrary ways of approaching and understanding life. But they end up at the same point. And they end up at the same place. But they start at opposite ends. What the first one's saying to us, there are some people who are just wandering through life. You know, they're not on any kind of search. They're not on any kind of pilgrimage. They're not trying to save the whales. They're not trying to save trees. They're not denying. They're just bebopping bopping through life. Whatever comes, that's fine. They have not thought about global warning for a minute. They're just bopping along. And suddenly, to their surprise, they stumble upon something. As though they had found treasure in a field. Remember, there's no banks in those days. And when you were going away on a trip, you did one of two things with your money. You either left it with a friend whom you, and whom you trusted. So you kind of give them your wallet, give them the treasure, whatever it was. Or you buried it in the field for when you returned. That's what you did. And so this person finds the treasure that someone has, sometime in the past, hidden in a field, buried for some future time. Now, some people reading this parable, this story of Jesus, get really all bent out of shape. They get concerned about the moral issue of buying a field without disclosing it to the owner that you've actually found treasure in the field. And what are you going to do about the moral issue? That is not the point. Others get really concerned. If this person sells all that he has, how does he buy groceries next week and live? That's not the point either. Keep it simple, folks. It's a parable. Remember, a parable is the one key point. You don't have to spiritualize every part of the story. The point is this. That in his bopping through life, he finds something so valuable, so important, that he just goes and sells all that he has and just buys the field. The moral issue there is that's out of the window. Now we start with a different person. Someone at the opposite end of life. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and when he found one of great value, this is the person who's on a mission. Perhaps he's heard of this one unique pearl, a priceless gem. He's gone from marketplace to marketplace, all searching, never found of it, never satisfied. I think we know that there's people like that who are on a mission. They're like the Magi in the Christmas story. They're following the star, And they're asking the big questions of themselves. It's things like, who am I? And why am I here? And what is the purpose of my life? That's what they're searching for. And they toss and turn-seeking answers to these core questions of life. What, do I, what road do I follow? Christianity or existentialism, or whatever it might be. In his book, um, When All You've Ever Wanted Wasn't Enough, Rabbi Kushner writes, Our souls are not hungry for fame, or comfort, or wealth, or power. These rewards, in fact, create as many problems as they solve. Our souls are hungry for meaning. For the sense that we've figured out how to live so that our lives matter. So that the world will at least be a different, a little different, for our having passed through it. That's what we want. I love the verse from Matthew Arnold, who's an English poet, called The Buried Life. But often, in the world's most crowded streets, but often, in the dim of strife, there rises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of our buried life, a thirst to spend our fire and restless force in tracking out our true original course, a longing to inquire into the mystery of this heart which beats the wild so deep within us, to know whence our lives come and where they go. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? That's the man seeking a pearl. So do you understand, these, these two people are opposites. One just walking through life, not thinking frankly about very much at all. The other one is on an intense personal search for meaning and purpose. And although coming from two different directions, these stories intersect at the same place. The two people sell everything they have to get what is there. Which person right now best describes you? Are just kind of bopping along? Don't get too worked up about stuff? Never really thought much about the big issues? Or are you in the same trail as the Magi? Following the star for where it will lead you. So you see, the contradiction is this. The kingdom of God, which is the, we've said is the reign and rule of God over our lives, does not say just give me a little piece of your life and I'll be happy. It doesn't say, give me a little corner of your time or your money and I'll be satisfied. But discovering the kingdom, no matter which direction we may come from, whether we stumble upon it or search for it in our life pilgrimage, it asks us that we sell all that we have to gain it. It asks us that we give all that we are to know it. What is really important is what you do when you find the treasure of the kingdom. There's only one real choice. Only one real thing to do. Which is to give all that we are and all that we know to know it fully. This treasure in the field, this pearl of great price, is really a person... His name is Jesus.
0: Jesus.
1: Another contradiction. Greatness in the kingdom comes through humility. Again, from Jesus. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him, placed the child among them, and said, "Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven." That's a contradiction, or is it? You know, in one way or another, we all kind of want to get ahead. Many of you are involved in your careers. We want to get ahead in our career, have a a better um, position. With that, probably a better salary, a bigger office, more responsibilities. For many years, I've been intrigued by the fact that during their time and tenure in ministry, pastors seldom seem to go on to smaller churches. Ever notice that? They always move up to bigger churches. I wonder why that is. But the issue is much more than what our title is. The size of the office or whatever. The issue is an issue of really what is going on in our heart. Why am I trying to get ahead? As always, our example comes from Jesus. Here's a passage you should know. If you have a Bible this morning, can I really encourage you to take it out, or your iPad, whatever you read from. And this is a passage that I really urge you to commit to memory. Philippians chapter 2 starts at verse 5. This is one of the two great Christological passages in the New Testament. The other one is in Colossians. This one is absolutely classic. This is the hymn of Jesus. So many, many times I end up coming back here. Paul starts, it very probably is that Paul did not write this originally. It was a a very, it could be a very early Aramaic hymn that was sung in the church. So he might be quoting. Have this same mindset, the same attitude in you as Christ, as was in Christ Jesus, who, it says, being in the very nature of God, and what it means in Greek, is he shares the morphe of God. He did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but rather it says, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant. Now you understand why we sung the Servant King? And being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying, in these opening words, being in the very nature of God. He was equal to God in his inner being, in the morphing of his character. He and God shared the same essence. But he did not hold on to that. He did not grasp his fingers around that tightly and would not let it go. Father, he humbled himself. He opened his hands. Think of the time Jesus took off his robe and took a basin of cold, refreshing water and washed feet. But even more than that, he became humble and obedient to death and even death on the cross. Now, if this was the end of the story, it would still be amazing that someone would come and would die for us in this way. But you've got to read on. And you've got to realize realize between what we call verse 8 and verse 9, there's no verse numbers in the text, but between verse 8 and verse 9, there are three days. And those are the three days in which Jesus is in the tomb. And what happens in these three days in the tomb as light fights with darkness and as truth tussles with error? And the very best and worst of humanity wrestles with the power of God. And we wonder what will happen. And then you've got to catch the drama that's in verse 9. And so, therefore, God, now notice who starts the response God. Hyper exalted Jesus is what it says. To the highest place. And gave him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is kurios. To the glory of God the Father. It is saying to us that God is the one who raised him up. God exalted him. God put his hand into the tomb and God dragged them out of there and God lifted him up. Jesus trusted his future into the hands of his father. He trusted that his humiliation would not be the last word. He let God step into the situation, into his humility. He didn't have to do that. He trusted the outcome to God. That's why Peter says to us in his little letter, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand so that in due time He may lift you up. Notice in due time, when the time is right, not usually right away, but sometimes later, who does the raising up? God is the one who raises us up. God is the one who gives rewards in his time. I'm not saying to you there's anything wrong with trying to get ahead on our job or our career, but the kingdom of God is an issue of the heart. It's in the arena of the heart that we try to get ahead of other people and push them out of our way. It's in the arena of the heart that we push ourselves to the head of the line. It's in the arena of the heart that we think we're better than other people and we can outdo them. So Philippians begins, let this kind of thinking be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, so it's also in the area of the heart that we can step back and see what we can do to serve other people. It's in the area of our heart that we do not demand our own way. and have to be first, but can take a posture, rather, of helping people. Before we take off our robe and wash feet, we have to disrobe our own sense of importance and superiority of our heart. And if we will not do that, we will resist and fight the idea of helping others. But when we strip off the need to be first, the need to get ahead in our heart, then the action of helping will be easy. Humility has to be inside us. One um, very practical application, close to home, I know some of you are single, some of you are married. This speaks to those more who are married. Just let me do that this morning. Turn over if you've got your Bible open. Ephesians chapter 5. begins about verse um, 18, I think it is. Paul gives us two commands, two imperatives. Don't get drunk with wine. The second one is be filled with the Spirit. And what's that supposed to look like? He follows that with what we call in English, or in Greek, reason four Present participles. How would you recognize a present participle in English? I don't know how you recognize them in Chinese, but how do you recognize them in English? How do they end? Somebody's got it. Ing. They usually end with ing. This is an English lesson as well as a sermon. Okay, got it. Four things that says to us when we're filled with the Spirit. Here's what it looks like. Number one, we'll be speaking. Okay. To one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Secondly, we'll be singing, making melody in our hearts. Thirdly, you can bring those up. Okay, that's fine. We'll be giving thanks for all things. People are filled with the Spirit or people who are thankful. There are people who, are what it really says, is Eucharistic. And fourthly, it says, we will be submitting to one another in the name of Christ. When we're filled with the Spirit in our heart, we do not have to push our way around and get to the head of the line. But rather, we'll be submitting to one another. And then it gets specific. And you go down into verse 22, as it says in English, and it's just there. It says, wives, you do that, you take that attitude, you adopt that posture towards your husbands. The word submitting, by the way, is not in the oldest text. But wives to your husbands. And before you get all bent out of shape, it says, husbands, you love your wives in the same way and manner in which Christ loved the church. Which is submitting to her and seeking the good of the church more than anybody else. You know what it's telling us? The most intimate place that we're called to practice humility towards each other begins in the intimacy of our marriage and our home. The place we're called to practice this attitude of Christ, if we're married, is towards each other in marriage. We cannot demonstrate kingdom humility in the church to one another if we do not show that authentically first to ourselves. We're called to serve each other in marriage before we serve in any other capacity in our church. I did one wedding service some years ago at First Baptist here in Vancouver. And as I met with a couple, we talked about some premarital counseling and um, the service, all that kind of stuff. The young man used to be the bridegroom said to me, I'd like to do something in our wedding service. I would like to wash my bride's feet. I'd never seen that before. And he said, I want my life to indicate that I will serve her. And so as part of our wedding service, I would like to wash her feet. We talked about how we could do that, sensitively and carefully. And he said, we have many non-Christians at our service. So, Pastor Tom, I'd like you to tell them why I'm doing this and what this means. So, once they had exchanged their vows and their rings, his bride sat in the chair, and he took a basin of water, knelt before her, and washed her feet, and put her shoes back on. The meaning of the kingdom is not a supplement to successful living. The coming of the kingdom cuts across the way we usually think about things. It is a paradigm shift. It turns the way we think upside down. Sometimes it is a contradiction. And the final contradiction really belongs to the words of Jesus. He said to his disciples, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, a rich person, to enter of the kingdom of heaven. His disciples, when they heard it, they were greatly astonished. And they said, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked down at them and said, With man, with people, this is impossible. But with God, he says all things are possible. So here's your final question this morning. Have you discovered the kingdom of God in your life? Have you found this treasure in the field? This precious pearl? And if so, have you laid down all that you are and all that you have to hold its value in your hand? You know, the kingdom of God will seem to be full of all kinds of contradictions. Things that very frankly don't seem to make sense. No causes all kinds of struggle and angst and questions. until we accept them, until we step into their truth, until we experience the reality, then we will discover that living in the kingdom of God, frankly, makes more sense than anything else in the world. So I stood at a crossroads when I was 16. What will I choose? Christianity or existentialism? The way of the kingdom or the way of someone like Jean-Paul Sartre? More than you will ever know. More than I would ever tell you. I am glad that I turned to the way of the kingdom. And you are too. Let's stand. So Father, this morning, we thank you for this servant king. And not only lay aside his robe to wash feet, but lay aside his life to die for us. Thank you for him. Father, we hold all kinds of things in our hands. But for a moment, we have to be empty-handed. Find life in you. And just gently sing, take my life. And let it be consecrated, Lord, to you.